Welcome to Relationships as Spiritual Practice, Bridging the Secular and Spiritual, with your host, Lachelle Lowe Chardet, founder of Mindful Compassionate Dialogue and Wiseheart PDX. Hello, thank you for being here. Thank you for your time and your attention and your commitment to evolving and growing in yourself and caring for others. Today I want to start with some foundations. In all of these podcasts, I want to periodically return to spiritual foundations for the work we're doing together so we can keep those present. And then I want to go into this complicated topic around codependent, thriving, differentiation, care for others, responsibility for others, responsibility for yourself. There's so much to sort out there and I'm excited to dive into it today with you. First, I want to begin with what I see as three primary aspects of spiritual practice. Love, growth and evolution, and contribution to life. And let's, let's look at this word love. I really want to reclaim it from all its Hollywood associations with romance and kind of airy, abstract ideas and bring it into a grounded, central aspect of our daily life. When I say love, I'm thinking of synonyms. I'm thinking of so many manifestations of love, like empathy, compassion, kindness, care, friendliness, gentleness, warmth, consideration, life-serving boundaries, and all the actions we take to live from our values of equity and preservation of life and care for our planet. Love has so many manifestations and there's so many ways we could name it. And at the same time, that word love is important to claim and to connect with and to find that sense of open heart that it connotes. The second primary aspect of spiritual practice, growth and evolution, that we are here to grow and evolve as spirits having this human adventure. And when we see our challenges in this way, as serving this purpose of growth and evolution, we can begin to shake loose the identification we have with those challenges. Oh, if I were a better person, I wouldn't have this challenge. Or if I weren't so incompetent, I wouldn't have failed at that, right? We want to move out of this identity making with our challenges and embrace our challenges as ways to strengthen our spiritual muscles. 
So for example, if you had some tough reactivity in a given day, and you were telling someone at the end of the day, Ooh, I was in this reactivity today. Another way of saying that from this spiritual perspective is, I had a thorough workout in the spiritual gym today, right? You really practice strengthening those spiritual muscles when you took the time to reflect on that reactivity, to get support around it, and to see all the way through it. That's the main thing. When you see all the way through an instance of reactivity, every time it comes up, you weaken that pattern of reactivity. Another way to say that is, each time you see through reactivity, the next time you are less likely to be fooled by it, to identify with it, to act from it, to be entranced by it. One way to see all the way through reactivity to its bottom is to identify the core limiting belief that mm, we could say kind of it springs from in a way. This can be hard to do if you're not familiar with core limiting beliefs. Core limiting beliefs basically revolve around those core, those core needs that we talk about in various classes of mind. Those needs that correspond to developmental stages, which include basically safety, belonging, support or nourishment, authenticity, autonomy, and love and inclusion, attention, being seen and heard, and holding those as synonyms, those last ones. So when you're looking for a core limiting belief, it's good to take some time to journal, or if you have an empathy buddy, to just say, hey, I'd like to just let this reactive voice speak with the intention of hearing the pattern of it, hearing the pattern of words, identifying the layers of feelings, the layers of needs, until you get all the way to the bottom of that core need and that core limiting belief. So for example, you had a stimulus, let's say around uh, a friend or a loved one, you, you thought they weren't including you or they didn't care about you in some way. And so you just talk about that or you write that out. When this happened, I had these thoughts, no matter how crazy they seem to you, write those thoughts down or say those thoughts out loud. That will open the door to the next layer of what was going on in you. Say those thoughts out loud. I had this thought or a part of me was saying this to help you get some distance. And then when I said this to myself, I had this sensation in my body. Oh, it's so familiar. That insecurity, that fear, that anxiety. 
And then as you say that, you might be able to feel the next layer. And as I was in that anxiety, I could feel myself start to collapse and turn inward. Oh, and when I start to withdraw and turn inward, I know that that's usually means shame is lurking around somewhere. And then you follow the shame. And when I have that kind of shame, I know from my practice that underneath shame is the belief that I'm worthless or whatever it is. That's a core belief for me that I know is always under shame. <laughs> I'm worthless. Everyone has their own language and their own core limiting belief associated with shame and associated with any kind of reactivity. Usually it varies. But there's typically two or three very, very predictable patterns of reactivity with a predictable core limiting belief and a predictable core need. So with, for example, we'll just continue with our example of I'm worthless relates to the core need of love and acceptance. Mm, love and acceptance, right. Good knowing you're good. And then you can turn to your anchor. Oh, how do I know I'm good? How do I get back in touch with my goodness? And then you call upon your anchors one by one. Maybe you have several. The important thing here as you do this step is that you, the bridge you make from I'm worthless to I'm good, those bridges are small at first, right? So for example, well, how do I know I'm not worthless? Well, I can think of times I contributed to people this week, that I was helpful. Oh, I can remember someone special in my life looking at me with love and showing me love. Hmm, I know that I have tremendous love for my animals or the trees around me and that I am made from the same stuff as those beloved trees or animals or, or even people in your life. I'm made from the same thing. We all come from the same source. Therefore, I know I'm lovable. Then you just keep finding those little bridges, inviting that sense of worthiness, lovability, acceptance, or whatever it is for you that you're working with. Keep focusing on those anchors until you start to feel that shift. So that was kind of a long example of grow and evolve. Of course, our growth and evolution doesn't always have to come from suffering. Yay, thank goodness, right? <laughs> thank goodness you get to grow and evolve in all sorts of ways. And seeing all the way through reactivity and embracing your challenges is just one way. We grow and evolve by immersing ourselves in wholesome relationships, inspiring relationships, maybe through reading things that really inspire and get us grounded in our values, taking action that raises up our consciousness and expands our view to include more and more 
of what's happening for others. So many ways to grow and evolve. Okay, one more. So these are three primary aspects of spiritual practice. First, we talked about love and its various synonyms and manifestations. Second, growing and evolving. And the third, contribution. We're also here to contribute to look for opportunities to share the light and love that you are in the smallest of ways, taking that little bit of extra energy to come out of thoughts about yourself or your plans for the day, and to look up and smile at a stranger going by. It's huge. Those little actions we take to contribute have a ripple effect. They go out and out and out. A smile you share with stranger may change their day. You know all this. Just a reminder. We also might seek ways to contribute that inspire us to stretch outside our comfort zone, to do something new, to say, something to yourself like, I don't know anything about trees, but I want more trees in this world because I know it helps. So I'm going to volunteer for a tree planting day, even though I don't have any idea how to plant trees and there'll be all kinds of people I don't know. I'm going for it. I'm going to stretch to contribute in a way that I'm excited about. With contribution, it's also important to take time to really look at, oh, what I tried to contribute there with my family or my friend or someone else. And was that a contribution? Or was I in some agenda for them? What was their actual response? So lots of layers of contributing. Important to remember that often the most important contributions are spontaneous and from the heart and things we might call little, that aren't actually little at all. And so when we turn our attention to self-responsibility, responsibility for others, and differentiation, I want to keep in mind these three primary parts of spiritual practice, love, growth, and evolution, and contribution. So let's start with self-responsibility. And of course, we pull these things apart. And at the same time, when you are self-responsible, you are being responsible for others. Because we constantly impact each other and affect each other. And when you take care of yourself, you're available to care for others. And your light shines and brightens our whole environment. So then a deep part of spiritual practice is cultivating compassion and wisdom that helps you care for your life. I love a little, uh, a little thing I have going with one of my friends. We're both very, very big animal lovers and committed to caring for animals. And she was saying recently, my body is like having a pet a very complicated pet that needs a lot of attention and care. I really like that. 
because my love for my pets flows. It overflows. And I'm, I love tending to their needs and making sure they're happy and doing every little thing that I think will bring them happiness and thriving. And sometimes it can be a little more difficult to care for our own bodies in the same way, with the same enthusiasm. Your body as a pet might help bring that enthusiasm and that sweetness to caring for yourself. You can make some distinctions with self-care that might be helpful for discerning wisdom. Probably when I say them, you'll recognize them. Let's, let's talk about three distinctions with self-care. The first, really basic. Really basic, but can be hard to see sometimes. The difference between meeting your needs and pursuing cravings or avoiding aversion, right? Pursuing craving or avoiding aversion. It requires careful attention to your body to understand the difference between craving and aversion versus meeting your needs. And maybe the corollary for aversion would be setting life-serving boundaries. I think you know that craving and aversion contain tension. They contain kind of a tightness that is associated with pulling towards or pulling away. I know that for my body, when I'm low on calories for the day, or I haven't eaten in a while, my body will often send a signal that's associated with carbohydrates. It'll say, quick energy, please. I think that's true for everyone. And then it will, it will transmit to me images of my most favorite snack foods, chips or sweets of some sort. And I recognize that as, oh, I haven't eaten in a while. I don't actually need chips or sweets, right? I just need food. So that's just a really simple distinction that you probably already know in yourself. And that I'm hoping you can generalize to more complicated emotional, spiritual needs, mental needs. What's the difference there between craving and aversion and meeting your needs and setting life-serving boundaries? A contemplation question for you to sit with. Let's look at the second one. A huge part of self-care is engaging with life and engaging in new experiences. So when that desire to do something new or to engage actively in something that brings you joy or challenges you in a way that's interesting to you, that's a good sign that self-care is happening, right? If you have that desire to engage. 
Or we could say willingness to engage. I'm thinking of depression and how quickly depression takes away desire, that feeling of, oh, I want to, or other words we could use besides desire, passion or enthusiasm. Depression kind of mutes those feelings. So let's say that even if there's a willingness to engage, that's enough. That means you're doing self-care. The presence of depression does not negate the self-care that you're doing. It's its own complicated entity for another podcast. Okay, the third thing to look for to help you monitor your self-care and to, to watch for as a sign that self-care is happening is your ability to reflect and engage in transformation. When someone doesn't want to reflect on their actions or reflect on how they're living their values, that's a good sign that they just don't have enough support. They don't have enough resources to do that. Resources are being funneled into self-care and there is a paucity, a lack of self-care there. And so if you're, se- if you're noticing, like, I just want to veg out, on, I want to binge on movies or on Netflix for hours and hours, or I just want to check out somehow, that's, that's a sign that self-care is lacking, that some needs are going unmet and maybe have been going unmet for a while, for a week or a month or longer. So it means pausing and getting some support. Let's look at one more thing for self-care to consider as you're dedicating yourself to self-care that truly supports your thriving. You can take the universal needs list and in absolutely your own way, divide it into four basic categories. Physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. Sometimes I include energetic as a category. Whatever works for you. And sort those needs with these four categories. It just makes the needs list shorter. Maybe a little less overwhelming as far as looking at self-care. And you can ask yourself, kind of review a week and ask yourself, hmm, looking at the needs in the physical category, is there something I've been missing in this last week or last month that might be leaving me depleted, right? And go through and do that for each category, emotional, mental, and spiritual. This is a way to track your self-care and hopefully inspire decisions that help you take care of yourself and create balance among those aspects of your life. So that's self-care, committing to cultivating compassion and wisdom, discerning the difference between pleasure and needs, monitoring the desire to engage, and the ability to reflect and pursue transformation.
Let's look at this next part. Responsibility for your impact on others. There's a couple of distinctions I want to make here. Key distinctions. Cause versus stimulus. And then I want to look at key distinctions with healthy differentiation. So two concepts and several distinctions, let's say. So cause versus stimulus is a way just to help you sort where your responsibility begins and ends. And like any distinction that we make with language, you know, language is an approximation to what's actually happening in reality. So keep that in mind. There's no really no hard lines. But it can be helpful to try and make some lines just for sorting our experience. So in the world of nonviolent communication and certainly in mindful compassionate dialogue, which is the system I teach, we say that we stimulate feelings and reactions in others. And we take responsibility in saying that our actions support the needs of others or don't support, or we say meet or don't meet or nourish or don't nourish, whatever language works best. And so as we're taking responsibility, we're asking that empowering question, Oh, did my behavior support a sense of a need being nourished or cared for or respected in you? Or did it not? Instead of support that need, did it stimulate a sense of threat? Or did it did my action just not meet your need? Kind of it we have a whole continuum of very concrete things like food and shelter, right? and these hmm, needs that are harder to kind of wrap our minds around sometimes, like consideration or care or trust. When we are really grounded in our behavior either meets needs or doesn't meet needs, it's so empowering because from that place, we can take a different action. Oh, when I see that my words or my actions didn't meet your need for care, I can get curious. Well, what would have met your need for care in that situation? What could I have done differently that would have been helpful? If we're thinking that we're responsible for someone's feelings, it gets complicated really fast. What do I have to do to get you to feel a certain way? Which needs do I have to meet? What words will make you feel this way or that way? It's an impossible challenge. We're not responsible for how someone feels based on our behavior or based on their needs. 
very important distinction there. We're not, re we're not responsible for how someone feels based on our behavior. And at the very same time, we can still hopefully express compassion for the impact we had on them that then gave rise to unpleasant feelings or very, very difficult feelings. We're going to talk more about that in healthy differentiation. When I teach my students about reactivity, it's tricky because there's this stage of learning that, that I think can be liberating because there's so much enmeshment being modeled all around us that it can be liberating for my students to realize, ah, I'm not responsible for the other person's reactivity. Ah, thank goodness. And they feel relief and they, and often there's an impulse to draw a hard boundary there. You're being reactive and I'm not responsible for that, right? And then the compassion is lost. That's just a stage of growth that that person is going through. If you hear yourself say that or lose compassion, that's a stage of growth. It's okay. You're going to evolve there and become more subtle. But at first, what's happening when you do that, when you say, that's just your reactivity, you're trying to protect yourself from shame or guilt, most likely. The shame or guilt that has been long associated with, if someone's upset, it's my fault, I'm doing it wrong, I'm failing, there's fear there, I could be punished. Right? It's a spiral of escalating mutual reactivity. So then, I want to have compassion for you as you lose compassion for the other person and say you're just being reactive to them and you walk away or you have a harshness in your tone. That you're trying to keep hold of yourself in the midst of having done something that was a stimulus for reactivity and pain for the other person. That's okay. Let's look at a subtlety there between feelings and needs and reactivity. I want to help you sort that in the moment, let's say you're late for a date with a friend. In the moment, your lateness stimulated or didn't meet a need for predictability and clarity with them. They were counting on you being there and that didn't meet their need for predictability, maybe reliability. And having that need unmet and having wanted to meet it, let's assume your friend wanted that need met and that's what they were focused on, then they have this feeling of disappointment or worry or confusion. You can see how those feelings are directly related to those needs which were unmet by your behavior of being late. And then if that person has a history of when someone's late, it has turned into their 
they're perceiving abandonment and that abandonment then triggers memories of thinking they're worthless, right? There's that worthless thing again or shame or hopelessness in them. So there's the initial stimulus of being late and that initial feeling of confusion or disappointment. And then that might activate this whole history associated with that. So that's a reactive pattern, right? And then there's another layer of feelings, right? Anger, maybe anger, shame, anxiety, whatever it might be. So my dream for you is that you recognize, oh, often that can be the case. Remember, we have this phrase a student taught me many years ago. If it's hysterical, it's historical. If the unmet needs of the associated with your action don't seem to match the intensity of feelings, then there might be something else going on there related to that person's past, a reactive pattern. My hope is that you can see, oh, yes, my actions didn't meet this need. And of course, there was disappointment in the moment or confusion in the moment. Yes, I want to be responsible for that. Say, I'm sorry that I didn't meet your need for predictability because I want to care for you. And now I see that it has stimulated all these other feelings. And I feel compassion because I know from my own experience how hard reactivity is, how uncomfortable, how painful it is. And I'm not blaming myself for that arising of reactivity. I'm caring for the person without blaming myself. I can stay in compassion. And so that brings us to healthy differentiation. Healthy differentiation is this subtle internal organization, subtle seeing of what's true that allows you to stay grounded in your own goodness and have compassion or the pain or reactivity you may have stimulated for someone else because you're not lost in your own shame and guilt about being that stimulus or behaving in a way, better said. So with healthy differentiation, you remember, oh, I'm doing the best I can and my actions, of course, my actions, my energy, my thoughts, my words constantly impact the people around me. Constantly. It's unavoidable. And you're absolutely always doing the best you can for that impact to be a positive one. So you remember, I'm, knowing, I'm doing the best I can along with everyone else to love, to grow and evolve, and to contribute. 
And when you are grounded in that sense of your own goodness, you can have space for both. The grief and the regret for the times you don't contribute. The distance, the healthy distance from the other person's reactivity that allows you not to blame and shame and the compassion for what they're going through. It's hard. I just want to add that's hard to do. It's a lot. That's what we're all evolving towards in a way, right? One of the many things we're evolving towards. That in a moment when someone's upset with you, how could you be yawning while I'm saying something really tender and you're just yawning really loud too, right in the middle of my vulnerable sharing? How could you do that? So rude. Woo, that's hard to hear in that moment, right? You're just really tired from your long day and you weren't quite ready maybe to hear something vulnerable. You didn't actually have the energy to be present for that person's vulnerable sharing, but you didn't know that before they started sharing. So you couldn't, you couldn't tell them. You weren't quite aware of how tired you were. And so in that moment of fending off shame, shaming inside of you or guilt, you defend oh, that's just your reactivity. I'm just yawning. Don't take it so personal, right? And that comes up and we, we're trying to hold on to ourselves and we lose that compassion for our impact on someone else. When someone immediately expresses anger like that, they're often, or we often hear that they're assigning motive you yawned because you don't care about me. And that's what we're defending against, right? We're defending against the accusation we hear that your action was an attempt to, or was an expression of your lack of care. And so we want to be seen. And the tragic strategy for being seen is to defend or to blame the other person, or to shove them away by telling them that's just their reactivity, or they're taking things too personal, kind of telling them what they should and shouldn't do to help get relief from us, for us. Yeah, we see a lot of that, right? It's modeled. That's okay. It's okay that it happens sometimes. We just keep working our spiritual muscles and remembering, ah, let me come back. My actions meet needs or don't meet needs or nourish needs for others. And I have this incredible opportunity to take responsibility by getting curious about the other's experience and learning together how we can honor all of our needs in a given context. So with the yawning example, you might say, oh, I can understand, yes. When you tell me that my yawning is rude, yes, I can totally see that. 
I can understand that it would land as rude for you and that right now you are looking for presence as you share something vulnerably. vulnerably. And I regret that I actually don't have that presence to offer right now. I didn't know how tired I was. I'm sorry that I didn't have the awareness to say that up front. Next time, when I notice you're sharing something vulnerably, I'll, I'll ask you to pause and say, hang on, let me just see if I can give you the presence that I really want to give you right now. If I have the energy and spaciousness in me. Or maybe you could, if you want to share something that's tender for you, let me know. I want to share something tender and then ask me to check in. Ask if I have that presence. So each time that our impact on someone else isn't what they enjoy or isn't what meets their needs, we have this opportunity to notice like, oh, well, how can we do that differently next time? And hopefully each time with less shame and blame, each time we gain this confidence in whatever happens, Whatever my impact, we can repair. We can repair by offering empathy for what happened, by becoming aware of the needs present in you and in the other person, and therefore capable of making a plan to do it differently next time. Recognizing that some things have layers and layers and any given behavior has infinite causality. So depending on the complexity of the situation, you might go back further and further in time and you might see, oh, when I made this decision a month ago, I can see how it was a major contributor to me behaving this way now or to contributing to a context that was confusing for everyone and didn't support the kind of clarity and connection that would have helped all of us or both of us behave in a way that honored needs for everyone. And as I say that, I just want to really emphasize that when you reflect on a situation, when you choose to do that with yourself in a journal or with an empathy buddy, that first it's important to anchor yourself in that compassionate witness so that that analysis of your act past actions isn't coming from your critic. Your inner critic has a skewed view of things doesn't see you very well or doesn't see situations very well. So reflection on what you've done that supported or didn't support the kind of contribution you want to make in the world comes from that compassionate witness. And if you can't find that compassionate witness with yourself, call on your community, call on your empathy buddies to help you find that perspective.
Thank you so much for joining me today. I so appreciate your time and attention. I hope you have enjoyed our grounding in three aspects of spiritual practice, love, growth, evolution, and contribution. Our mm, overview of self-responsibility and including those distinctions of pleasure versus, or pleasure, or let's say craving, it's a better word, craving and aversion versus caring for your needs, checking in with the desire to engage with life, checking in with your ability to reflect and engage in transformation, and looking at broad categories of self-care, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, maybe energetic too, and when thinking about what are you responsible for with others, reflecting on the difference between being a cause and a stimulus and meeting or not meeting needs and stimulating or not stimulating particular feelings and reactive reactivity. And with healthy differentiation, grounding in your own goodness, however you do that, and that fundamental perspective that you're always doing the best you can to contribute and live the love that you are in this world. May you have a strong and clear <laughs> week of spiritual practice, two weeks till we meet again. May you remember that every moment of challenge is a chance to build your spiritual muscles and embrace those challenges as best you can. And may you live from love in its many, many forms and manifestations. Radiating love from my heart to yours. You can find free resources and information about Mindful Compassionate Dialogue, as well as Wiseheart's live offerings and self-paced workshops online at www.wiseheartpdx.org. You can also connect with Wiseheart on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, or by emailing info at wiseheartpdx.org.